Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Victor Jonai? First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crime, and offer my analysis. Victor Jonai was born in Montenegro and moved to the United States with his parents when he was 12 years old. They lived in the town of Sterling Heights, Michigan. At age 18, Victor became a real estate agent. At some point, he had a child from a romantic relationship. After this, he married a woman named Rose and had three more children. Eventually, Victor became a commercial real estate broker in Detroit. He worked on deals for a number of large companies like Burger King, Taco Bell, and Walmart. Victor was known for being relentless, assertive, and somewhat reckless. He took a lot of chances. For example, he would sign contracts to buy expensive properties and then try to find buyers to assume the purchases for more money. This activity was technically legal, but it could have left him in a lot of trouble financially if he could not find buyers. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. Victor not only liked to gamble in his real estate business, he liked to gamble on the lottery. He became particularly interested in a game called Club Kino. This is a lottery game that has live drawings every few minutes. After playing the game frequently, Victor became convinced that the numbers were not random. He even created a smartphone app designed to predict the winning numbers. On one occasion, Victor won $52,000 playing this game. This made him confident that his formula was correct. When the restaurant where Victor played Club Kino closed, he started playing other games, specifically the Michigan Lottery Daily Four. This game involves a player trying to predict four random numbers which are generated by bouncing ping pong balls. If the player's ticket matches the number exactly, they win $5,000. There is a 1 in 10,000 chance of winning. The lottery offers what they call a wheel play, which is where somebody buys every permutation of the four digits for $24. This makes sense because with four digits, there are 24 permutations. If a person purchased the wheel play for the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, and the daily four winning number was 3, 4, 1, 2, the person would win because 3, 4, 1, 2 is one of the permutations of 1, 2, 3, 4. The wheel play increased the odds of winning from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 416, which makes sense because 10,000 divided by 24 is 416. Victor purchased lottery tickets from party stores. This is a type of alcohol and tobacco shop 
in the state of Michigan. Over time, Victor came to believe that he was observing patterns in the numbers, which could afford him a better chance of winning. He tracked winning numbers on spreadsheets and would buy thousands of tickets. Victor lost the vast majority of the time. His secret system did not make any sense. The lottery numbers were, in fact, random. There was no pattern. Victor won a few times, which kept propelling him forward. For example, after becoming convinced that the numbers 7800 were coming up soon, Victor purchased $300 to $1,012 tickets every day for several days in a row on those numbers. Victor did not restrict his gameplay to just the $24 tickets. He played other types of tickets as well. On June 18, 2015, Victor won $2.5 million. In November 2017, Victor spent $19,200 on $824 tickets for the numbers 2706. He won $4 million. These winnings may sound impressive, but Victor was losing much more than he was winning. A month before winning the $4 million payoff, Victor set up a real estate company. In January of 2018, Victor recruited an old friend named Gregory. One evening, as Gregory was leaving the real estate office, Victor told him to play the numbers 8643 in the Michigan Lottery Daily Four. Gregory bought two $1 tickets for that number and won $10,000. Victor had also played that number on 2,000 tickets. He won $10 million. Victor showed Gregory his secret system, but Gregory realized that there was no system. Even still, Gregory was happy to have a job and the money, therefore he continued to help Victor. On February 28, 2018, Victor won about $9.5 million. Less than a month later, on March 17, Victor won $2 million. This would be his last significant win. To cover his losses, Victor had been taking the money of investors who thought that they were investing in real estate and putting the money in lottery tickets. By the summer of 2018, he owed millions of dollars to investors, but he wasn't worried. He planned to purchase more lottery tickets, which he thought would take care of the problem. As this was going on, Victor bought 3.6 acres of property with the intent of building a $2.25 million mansion. By July of 2019, the work on the mansion stopped because Victor owed almost $200,000 for labor. Victor started selling his property to pay investors and the party stores where he bought the lottery tickets. In August, Victor received almost $2.5 million from an investor, but it wasn't enough money to undo the financial damage Victor had already caused. Victor traveled to downtown Detroit and turned himself in to an FBI field office. He demanded that they arrest him for his offenses. They sent him away instead. On August 20, Victor was transported to the hospital after the police received a complaint about his behavior in a hotel in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was roaming around a hallway wearing only boxers and speaking in broken sentences. Three days later, a lawsuit was filed against Victor. It would be the first of many. The plaintiffs were asking for tens of millions of dollars. Victor's real estate company was closed. On January 28, 2021, Victor was charged with one count of federal wire fraud. In March of that same year, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 53 months in prison. Victor agreed to make restitution in the amount of $25 million. 
Realistically, no investor will ever see that money again. During his time playing the lottery, Victor had won $28 million in total, technically making him one of the biggest winners in Michigan lottery history. But of course, he lost more than he made, therefore he was not a winner at all. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Now moving to my analysis. How would I conceptualize the case of Victor Joni? This is just a theory, my opinion. Victor was always looking for a way to beat the system. As a real estate broker, he engaged in risky deals in order to score big. Most of the time, it paid off for him. But when he became interested in gambling, he discovered an adversary he could not defeat. Organized gambling is based on statistics, not emotions. Victor's power of manipulation had no effect on statistics. When Victor won $52,000 playing Club Kino, This was one of the worst things that could have happened to him. His confidence in his own abilities was so high, he became convinced his behavior caused him to win, like he had figured out some type of system. He was aware of something that other people had missed. This had an exciting consequence. If his victory was not simply due to luck, then it was a circumstance which could be replicated. One could argue that Victor was willing to bet everything on his belief that he was special. When Victor could no longer play Club Kino, this was his chance to move away from gambling. But by this point, he was already trapped. He moved to the Michigan Lottery. This, of course, meant that he was playing different games, yet he still thought that he had found order in the chaos of the random numbers. There was no game he could not beat. No game was outside his incredible greatness. His life became consumed in the activities of buying tickets and submitting claim forms. He had to get other people to help him in order to keep up with the volume. Victor was running a large-scale operation 
that was efficient at doing something which was nonsensical. The people who helped Victor knew that he didn't have a system. No one ever believed that he had any idea what he was doing, yet they continued to help him. Victor would sometimes talk about numbers for 20 hours a day, desperately trying to form a matrix or an algorithm that would facilitate victory. He would extract patterns he had seen in license plates and telephone numbers. He would subject these numbers to strange calculations, some of which involved bizarre references like the numbers from his birth date. He would write numbers down and search for connections between them. It was almost like he was having ideas of reference. This is where people connect unrelated events. For example, they might look at a television show and believe the dialogue spoken by a character contains a special message just for them. Victor convinced himself that he was seeing a pattern in the numbers, which led him to buy thousands of tickets. In his way of thinking, the more tickets he purchased, the more money he would make. He collected millions of dollars from investors and used much of that money on lottery tickets. As Victor was running into financial problems, he became paranoid. He thought that state lottery officials were out to get him. They knew about his secret system and wanted to shut him down. I don't think the lottery officials ever believed he had a system, but they were somewhat suspicious of Victor. Not many people play the same number on 5,000 different tickets purchased for the same drawing. In prison, clinicians said that Victor had what they referred to as severe substance abuse disorder. There is no disorder by this name. They are probably referring to substance use disorder. That middle word is use, not abuse. They said that Victor had been using alcohol, cocaine, and marijuana. There is treatment available for substance use disorder in prison, but the only thing they had available for gambling addiction was a pamphlet. Ironically, the prison system was essentially saying to an inmate with a gambling addiction, oh, you have a gambling problem? Well, read this pamphlet. Maybe you'll have good luck. It kind of seems like they are only reinforcing the problem with that strategy. Moving to the last question, regardless of whether Victor did or did not suffer from pathological gambling, what do we know about this condition from the research? Pathological gambling affects about 2% of the population. It is highly comorbid with certain disorders, for example, major depressive disorder and alcohol use disorder. A pathological gambler is 23 times more likely to have alcohol use disorder than someone who is not a pathological gambler. A person's experience of being dependent on gambling is similar to being dependent on chemicals. Many substance users are chasing the original high, the feeling they had the first time they used the drug. Similarly, Gamblers often try to recreate the feeling of their first big win. They view their many losses as getting them closer to another massive victory and the high that comes with that. Therefore, in a sense, both victories and losses reinforce the gambling behavior. Every possible outcome from gambling encourages more gambling when somebody is a pathological gambler. Now moving to my final thoughts. Victor Jonai spent the money of investors to become one of the biggest winners and losers in the history of the lottery. The only system that Victor had was the ability to play a lottery just like anyone else. Consequently, he was subject to the same probabilities. During his criminal career, Victor insisted that he was special. As it turns out, he was special, just not in the way 
he thought he was. His special talent was cheating investors. As Victor spent his time betting on the wrong numbers, his investors were betting on the wrong horse. This story reminded me of a person that I encountered some time ago when I was consulting in the area of counselor education supervision. I'll change the information in the story to protect the innocent. I was visiting this facility that treated people for substance use disorders, mostly alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, heroin, but there were a number of people there for pathological gambling as well. It's often considered a secondary problem. Like if somebody is addicted to alcohol, the treatment staff are going to focus on that and not as much on the gambling. But either way, the gambling was something that was treated in the facility. There was one particular counselor at the facility who had a different sense of humor and kind of a direct way of dealing with a lot of the participants in the program, a number of the clients. There is a tradition in substance use disorder treatment, which is not so great, that involves counselors being very confrontational with people who have disorders. It's often called the moral model. It's this idea that if a person uses substances or has any type of addictive behavior like pathological gambling, they are doing it because they are weak morally. They have failed at some moral level, and this is why they can't resist the drugs or whatever it is they can't resist. This leads to a lot of different phrases being used repetitively with the clients, challenging them on this moral model, right? trying to push them to move past this perceived weakness. Some of these phrases amount to nothing more than trickery, just trying to manipulate clients. And one of the phrases this particular counselor used, I think really ties in with that. When pathological gamblers would approach her and say, I don't have a gambling problem, she would say, do you want to bet? This leaves the pathological gambler with no good answer. If they say yes, then it looks like they have a gambling problem. If they say no, it looks like they're backing away from their original statement. Like they said, they're not a pathological gambler, but they're not willing to bet on that. Of course, this is just a silly verbal device that doesn't have any real meaning, but it was something that she used repeatedly to trap the clients. It was really more frustrating to them than anything. Again, it didn't really have any meaning, but just one of those stories that I found interesting. This is something that she did repeatedly for years. This kind of running joke when somebody would say that they weren't a pathological gambler. One other element I found interesting with the story is how some of the clients reacted positively to the joke, but many, again, were quite frustrated. So I think that when somebody thinks of something clever like that in a treatment environment, if one wants to think of that as clever, they need to be careful how they use that. With a client who can kind of understand the joke, I think that's fine. With somebody who's really struggling with pathological gambling, who's really trying to figure out if they have it or not, that joke probably wouldn't be too helpful. There are many creative tactics that are used in substance use treatment facilities. Many of them have that kind of repetitive feel and also kind of that humor that not everybody would get. It's something that I've seen many times in that industry. Anyway, that's just something interesting I thought I'd share. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon.
This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season two's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.